0: The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a big day uh, here at the church, big weekend. Uh, We know, we heard during the announcements VBS is starting this week where over a hundred children will come into this church to learn about Jesus in a, a as the church is transformed into essentially a giant space station where they're going to learn about the light and love of Jesus. It's also Father's Day as you've been Made well aware of. And, uh, but that is not going to necessarily be the topic of our sermon this morning. You can see up here I have a whiteboard. Uh, I used to be the young adult pastor here at the church and the young adults would often make fun of me if I brought out a whiteboard. They would say that I didn't actually have a message prepared, which is not true. I do. Uh, it's a big day and I think about Father's Day and I just think about what a privilege it is to be a dad. Uh, it's the greatest privilege of my life, other than being a follower of Jesus, is to be a husband to my wife, Beth, and a father to my children. They are everything to me. They are precious to me. And it's a wonder that God would entrust people like us to raise his precious sons and daughters, that he would lend them to us. It's, it's a gift and a privilege and it's a blessing in every way. Today is a day to maybe for you to just reflect with gratitude on the fact that God has called you to be a father and to, to take stock of, of what that means from you, to raise your children in the fear of the Lord. It's a, it's a gift, it's an honor, it's a privilege, and it is a great and heavy responsibility. And it's also a day, in light of that, to reflect on on the love that we've been shown from our fathers. I think of a lot of people in my life who have been like fathers to me. It's a, it's a, a chance to reflect with gratitude on on the, the coaches, the, the mentors, the pastors, the biological fathers, the adoptive fathers, the stepdads, whoever it is that's poured into your life. I think of my dad, Bill, over here, my father-in-law, Bill, probably a few other people named Bill, who have poured into my life <laughs> and uh, helped... Make me into the man that that I am today by the grace of God. And so what I want to do is just honor those men that are here as we've just done and and turn our hearts then to what it indicates, what it shows us of our Heavenly Father. Some of you have had very flawed father figures in your life, and yet we can look at the Scriptures and we can see that God is our good Father who loves us so much that He would lay down His life for us. He would send His very Son to rescue us from sin and death. To, to live among us in our brokenness. He is so good. He is good beyond any compare. And, and it's such a precious gift when we can begin to grasp his love for us as our good father. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray as we get into the word, and I'm going to uh, just pray about uh, just that God would stir up in, in our hearts a realization of his goodness as our as our dad. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our good father. We thank you for the the godly examples that we've had, those that have loved us and poured into us over the years. Lord, we thank you that even where there was lack in our earthly fathers, you have never lacked. You have never left us. You have never forsaken us, Lord, and we are so grateful for that. And so I pray that you would give us eyes to see you more clearly this morning as our Father. Eyes to see more clearly your best intention and hopes for us that are fathers, Lord. And we pray your blessing on this service as we open up your word. Help us to better understand who you are as we come to your word. Your love for your children, Lord, and how we are to live in response to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we turn to Mark chapter 12, that's what I invite you to do, is open up your scriptures to Mark chapter 12. We're going to finish this chapter today, uh, Lord willing, starting in verse 35, going through the end of chapter 12. And just fair warning, today we're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about money. We're also going to revisit this next week because there's, there's too much to say, but despite the fact that money is sometimes an uncomfortable a subject matter for people in church, they don't really want to hear about it or talk about it, it's something that is... Uh, a, Massive part of Jesus' teaching. If you look throughout the Gospels, he teaches on money regularly. Just in, in the Gospel of Mark, where of all the Gospels is, is perhaps the one that he speaks on money the least. Here in just the last few chapters from verse, or chapter 9 on, we've seen him go into the temple and flip tables of, of the money changers in the temple because of their, their abuse of power, turning this house of prayer into a house of commerce. I think of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Who comes to Jesus and he wants to live this this moral upstanding life. But what he cannot let go of is his great possessions. And as a result of his love of these possessions, his wealth, he turns away from following Jesus. I think about the discussion of of taxes that we looked at just a few weeks ago. And in Mark chapter 12 now, we're going to see a a contrast. A stark contrast between the showy gifts of the publicly wealthy and well-to-do and the poor offering of a widow. And so we're going to first establish the context, and then as you go through your outlines, you're going to see a condemnation from Jesus and then a commendation from Jesus. I don't want you to to mix those things together. There will be a condemnation and then a commendation from Jesus. And I want to begin, as we establish the context for this, by asking a question that I asked my children this, this week. I got some interesting answers from them. I asked them this. I said, is it better to be rich or to be poor? I wonder what you think. Is it better to be rich or to be poor? I let them know that this might be a, a bit of a trick question when I asked it because their instant response, my son said, it's better to be rich, right? Because you get stuff and then he thought about it and he said, no, it's better to be poor because uh, poor people are nice. He's had some kind of explanation for it. He just knew that, that, that the obvious answer couldn't be the right one. So he was <laughs> searching, searching for the answer. I think often, though, when we, when we approach Scripture and when we talk about this, this issue of wealth, we have this tendency to drastically oversimplify uh, the categories. And, and we do this as a society. Often it will go something like this. It will be either if you're rich towards God and you, you do the right things and you live according to his word, he will bless you. That's true. But then we think that means he will make you rich. Therefore, if you are poor, you must not be pleasing to God. This is known as as prosperity theology. Prosperity theology. Honor God and he will will bless your life by giving you wealth and possessions and resources. He will make you rich. And while we believe there are biblical principles that will lead to more stability in your life and perhaps blessing in your life, as you're a good steward of what God has given you, he says that he will bless you with more. He wants to multiply ministry through you. But for many reasons, we, we know scripturally that to honor God and to live a righteous life does not necessarily necessarily mean that you will be rich I could give you a lot of reasons for that but one clear example is the example of Jesus our Lord who who entered into our life in poverty who had no place to lay his head who basically couch surfed and camped his way through his three-year ministry he was not rich and yet the most righteous who ever lived on the flip side of that, we have something known as poverty theology or asceticism. And it basically says that, that if, you, if you have wealth or possessions, you cannot be righteous. And this is very popular actually in our society right now. It's like the, the evil people are these societal elites who have all the wealth and resources and the good people are those who have very little. So to be righteous, you need to pursue a simple living, functional poverty. And, and we don't believe that either. We actually see uh, many examples in scripture of people who are, are righteous and honoring to God with the wealth and resources he's given them. So actually there's four categories that we're going to look at here this morning. I just want to establish these for you so we can think about this the right way. And here's your microphone back if you want it. Nice. Okay. The first category that we see in scripture is actually that there are righteous rich. And you're going to have to excuse my handwriting. Um, this is the best a homeschool education will get you. Aunt, I'm just kidding. Mom, you did great. I love you. Uh, just had bad handwriting. Okay. Righteous, rich. We see many examples of this in scripture. We see some people that at least start out this way and then there's a tendency for, for some to go off track. But these are people that obtain wealth through righteous means. They honor God with their money. They invest wisely and God blesses them with, with even more. They work hard and they use their riches righteously to fund the mission and ministry of God. And we have many in this area. We have many even in this, this church who, who righteously use the resources God has given them to bless others and to multiply ministry. We also have the unrighteous rich. I'm going to do these a little out of order here. The unrighteous rich over here, and you can write them in whatever order you want because this isn't really intended to be a hierarchy, but the unrighteous rich uh, are those that Gather money in unrighteous ways by ripping people off, by by cheating others, by keeping their wealth and their resources all to themselves and wasting their money on frivolous living or living selfishly. And Jesus points to examples of this often in his teaching and in, in, in his proverbs. He points to people who are rich fools, who don't know that tomorrow is not promised, and who hoard up resources for themselves at, at the expense of others. We also see the righteous poor in Scripture, righteous poor. And I know many people like this, I've known people like this in my life, and they're just amazing. Because though they have very little, they will determine to use whatever they have to bless others. These are people that work hard, that are honest in their work, that that just don't have much. Whether it's based on the circumstances they were born in, or or the the country they live in, or the opportunities that are available to them, they, they don't have much. And yet, they are massively generous and righteous with even the little they have. And they righteously steward their resources for the glory of God. I think in 2 in Corinthians of the church in Macedonia that's like this. They are impoverished. And yet when they hear that the Christians in Jerusalem are suffering from famine, they gather together uh, uh, from their resources help for the church in Jerusalem, the much wealthier church in Jerusalem, and they send resources to help. These Macedonian Christians were Righteous and yet poor. And then lastly, there's the unrighteous poor. You all could see that coming, that you knew that's where this was going. There's the unrighteous poor, and these are those that will not work hard, that pursue their means through dishonesty, and uh, they don't invest. They don't provide. They don't uh, provide for their family. They chase pleasures. They make unwise, unrighteous decisions, and as a result, often, they are poor. And these are people that say, if I was rich, or when I win the lottery, then I will be generous. And the truth is, no, you won't. Scripture is clear that if you are unfaithful with little, we can bank on you being unfaithful with much. If you are faithful with little, God says you will be faithful with much. And so Jesus Though, we look at this, and, and I said I had a hesitation to even put this on a board, because we look at this, and, and then I would ask you, which one of these do you want to be? And most of us would say, well, this one seems like the best option. Like, if I, can, if I can be rich and also righteous, I want to do that. But actually, Jesus will often warn that this is difficult. This is difficult to live this life out, because of the, the tension and the, uh, the trouble that sometimes comes from riches. And then there's also this category, righteous, poor. We we shouldn't necessarily just be attracted to that. We see both in our Lord Jesus Christ. He was righteous and rich. He he lived in, in heaven, enthroned above, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And at the same time, he came to us to be poor and to live among us, to leave his home. Yet in both contexts, what is important and what is the concern of our Lord and the concern of scripture is that he was righteous. So that's the question for us. Whether you have Plenty or little, are you a a righteous steward of what God has given you? When I say steward, that simply means to manage. And some of us are eager to be generous. I'm going to ask a question that that we, well, I'll just ask it. How many of you want to be generous? Yeah, we all want to be generous. But some of us struggle to be generous um, in some cases because we are, are simply not good managers of the resources that we have. And so we find ourselves with not enough month at the end of the money. We find ourselves uh, somehow being able to prioritize a bunch of other things, but lacking any, any leverage, any ability to be generous with what we have. And, and yet I think that God has wisdom to give us so that we might more effectively steward his resources, to be effective stewards of his resources. We have something we offered uh, last week to you as a church, Financial Peace University. And I would just encourage you if, you, if you want to be part of that, there's still time. We're going to take a, a week off from it uh, for VBS week. And then the following week, we will offer a catch-up class for anyone who didn't get the opportunity to sign up. But what FPU is all about is it's about how to use uh, God and granny's wisdom for uh, financial planning and, and how to be someone who is a wise steward of God's resources in your life. I went through this when I first got married um, just over a decade ago with my wife and we didn't follow everything perfectly. It's very difficult to be disciplined all the time. But we got married and we had a whole lot of debt $100,000 of debt from private school education and grad school and a car and all this kind of stuff. We had a whole lot of love and we, we determined that we had to do something about our, our situation. And so we sought to honor God by giving first to his church and to his mission and then by learning how we could be effective stewards. And so we took this class, and we took this class with with some others here in the church, and it made a big difference in our lives. And so this class, it typically costs $120. The church has bought it for you for free, for every single person in here, if you want to be a part of it. It is free. And so I would just, I would implore you to, if you need to learn skills to become a wise steward of the resources God has given you, that's a great place to start. Come talk to me after the service. So this is kind of the the context, at at least these are the categories, and and let me look now at the chapter here to establish what's going on in this particular passage, starting in, let's see, verse, let's start in verse 35. We'll have to go back a little bit before we we get to the discussion of the widow's offering. But Jesus here, in this part of his ministry, he has gone to Jerusalem. This is the last week of his teaching. He's looking forward to uh, the cross, anxiously looking forward to the cross that awaits him on Friday. But in the midst of that, as he stays out of town, outside of town in Bethany with his friends, each day he is eager to go day after day into the temple, into his father's house to teach them and to often dispute with those who are opposed to him. So he's there in the open air of the temple courts. He's been teaching and disputing with his opponents and he's come up against hostile scribes and Herodians and Sadducees and Pharisees and they're all seeking to test him and all resoundingly unsuccessful but as group after group of, of outwardly successful, well-to-do people confront Jesus, we've seen that his heart is drawn not toward the proud, not toward the put-together, but as Tyler preached so well last week, he's, he's come to draw near to the doubting, the desperate, the disillusioned. He draws near to those people that, that seem to know that they need him. And so here, starting in verse 35, it says this. It says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Today in this teaching, he's going to be going after the scribes a bit. He says, How can they say that, that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then he says, David, calls himself, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son and the great throng heard him gladly two context pieces i want you to see is he's in the temple courts and there's a great throng about him there's a great crowd now this is a an interesting teaching it might be unusual to us and so we'll go through it quickly but this is a reference to psalm 110 and, and basically the scribes they had this favorite term for the coming messiah the son of david the son of david he would come from the house of david he would be an offspring of David and so this was their favorite term for the coming messiah and Jesus is saying simply no no the messiah is so much more than that he's not just the son of the house of David he is the lord of the house of David he's saying when i'm in this temple i'm in my dad's house this is this is my domain i am more than that as i teach here i teach as lord and then from this this reference to himself as a lord he then brings forth a condemnation against those he sees around him. He says in verse 38, and in his teaching, he said, beware, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He's not holding back, is he, when he begins to teach about these scribes. You can feel the sting in this. You can feel the call out. And it can be so tempting for any of us to desire places of of honor and recognition and outward signs of material wealth and success. And, you know, I went to, I did some of my seminary down in Dallas, Texas. And one of the, the greatest indicators of some of the preachers down there's success is the size of their sanctuary and whether they have people in their church who will give them cowboy tickets. That's like a big deal to them. This passage has got a sting. Those who desire the places of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, those who walk around with these scribes would wear, the scribes were the experts in the law. They would make decisions on the law. They, they would have day jobs, but then they would be these esteemed uh, characters in society and they wanted people to know it. So they'd wear these white flowing robes with tassels on the end. They'd make a big show and a big scene wherever they went and they loved when people would greet them and say, hello, Mr. Scribe, how are you today? Wow, I'm so glad you're my scribe, that kind of thing. They just loved that. But can we be honest, we all kind of like that. I mean, some of you are super introverted, maybe you don't. But, but many of us, we love to be loved, to be recognized, to, to be esteemed, for other people to think well of us, to, for other people to look at us and, and think, well, there goes a success. And yet with all this public piety, with all this externalism, all directed at, at growing their status and their glory, Jesus says that they are neglecting the most oppressed and vulnerable. In some cases, they they even, these scribes, would create laws that would disadvantage the poor. He says these people, their public prayers are just pretense. It's a show. He says they devour widows' houses. These people eat houses. It's quite a striking picture. The very people who actually ought to be responsible for protecting the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, to protect widows... According to the law of God, through, through their execution of the laws and through their interpretation of the laws, what they've done is they've actually disadvantaged the helpless and they've grown their own fattened real estate portfolios through the houses of widows. And so this is a harsh description. And in this harsh description from Jesus of these scribes, we see some characteristics of them. He's calling out their pride. He's calling out their hypocrisy. And he's calling out their greed. The difficult thing about hypocrisy and pride and greed are these are characteristics that, that almost nobody can see in themselves. These are difficult to see in ourselves. We, we as Americans, by and large, we suffer from these things, don't we? Historic, historically and globally, we are a country of great resource. We have wealth like the world has rarely seen. So if, if Jesus is calling us to beware of, of those that have status and wealth, if he's calling them out for their covetousness and their greed and their pride, we who are rich... That should give us pause. He says, beware. Beware. Beware the draw of pride. Beware a hypocritical lifestyle. Beware wealth built at the expense of others. Now, greed is not something we we talk about much. Maybe not at all. I think, uh, though, we can make a pretty compelling case that greed and covetousness are among the prevailing sins of American society. I wonder how many of you think that our, our society, our culture, has a bit of a greed issue. Anyone think that? Does anyone know anyone who might have a greed problem? As Milton says, I'm not talking about you. Maybe you know somebody, right? Yeah, but the, the tricky part about this is, is that we know this is all around us. We see people all around us that are unrelentingly convinced that what they have is not enough. And so we're all pursuing more and more and more, more success, more accolades. Look at me if we've, if we've gotten it. Look at me. Look at my success. And if you want this too, follow my system, just send me some money and I'll teach you how to do it yourself. And we're constantly bombarded with this notion that we don't measure up, that, but we could. And we, we believe it. We're just one new device, one new car, one new house, one new Instagram follower away from contentment, but, but we're not. It's a lie. It's, it's a house of cards. And yet this is such an insidious struggle for us, this, this, this greed that we deal with. Because I'll tell you, and, and I've, I'm echoing another pastor who said the same thing, but I've been in many um, meetings where people will come to me and they'll talk to me about their struggles. And they'll say, I'm struggling with, with lust and pornography, or I'm struggling with drink, or I'm struggling with uh, even pride or anger or, or these kinds of things. I have never had someone come to me and say, Mark, I need to talk. I'm really having a struggle with greed. Never, not once. And yet we all just raised our hand and said our society has a greed issue. And, and we all just kind of nodded our heads yeah, we know someone who might struggle with, with that. And yet I've never heard a confession of greed. I think that's why Jesus is saying, beware, beware this kind of life. Pay attention, and not just to the others around you, but, but look for these, uh, these characteristics in yourself because no one seems to think it's true of them. And yet this is such a, a, a tempting idol such a tempting idol. And what an idol is, it's not just this little gold statue that Indiana Jones steals or anything like that. It, it's Idolatry is when we put things in the place of God in our hearts. It's when we take good things and they become God things. They become the most important things to us. And he's saying, beware. Beware. Other things are obvious. You know, he, he, he doesn't say, uh, watch out, beware that you um, become an adulterer. Why? Because when you, you're in bed with your neighbor, you kind of know it, right? But greed and covetousness, they can sneak in undetected and blind us. And so he says, beware of the way that the scribes are. When, uh, when we reflect on this, uh, Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods, he discusses these tendencies in our heart, and he distinguishes between surface idols and deep idols. Things like wealth and possessions and money, they often show up as, as objects of our idolatry in our lives, but the reality is there's often something deeper going on in our hearts. Deeper idols, like, I just want to be loved by my dad. I just want power. I just want approval. I just want security. And, and, and none of those things are, are bad inherently. But we attempt to satisfy these deep longings of our heart by putting things in the improper place and improper order. And these deeper idols are expressed through our desire for possessions and and, and to have the perfect spouse and children and all these accomplishments. And so to truly deal with this, this is what I don't want to do. This is what I'm afraid I sometimes have a tendency to do, is to give you the problem and just, there it is, you've got it, deal with it. No, 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 what is the solution to this? When we look inwardly at our hearts, when we invite the Holy Spirit of God to search us and know us, what do we do? Well, I think that's actually a start, is, is give him permission to search you. To know you. To shine his light into your life. And if these things are there, if these temptations towards hypocrisy and pride and greed are there, say, God, search me. Expose these things. Show me. These are hard to see in myself. Would you show me? And as he does to confess those things to the Lord and to receive his forgiveness, he has has paid it all on the cross for you. He offers you grace and forgiveness. But when it comes to idolatry, there's also something else I'd, I'd encourage you in. Idolatry is simply this. It is misdirected worship. It's our worship aimed at, at the wrong thing and just as, as it becomes a problem as we worship the wrong things, our way out of it is to worship the right thing, the right person. And that is God alone. That is God alone. So, so, so watch this in this passage. is as, as so often the case in Jesus' upside down kingdom. The answer to greed is actually to give. The answer to this tendency in our hearts is to worship him with open hands. Look at this, this commendation that he offers in verse 41. It says and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. So so Jesus very human just like someone does at a shopping mall they go and they find a quiet place to sit in the shade. He's been working, he's been teaching and so he does something. He walks over to the shaded area in the court of the women. This this portion of the temple the inner temple complex in which women were able to enter. And he sits down by the treasury, which is shaded in the corner, and he can see the treasury. Everyone can actually see it. What it is is these large wooden offering boxes with on the top this, this metal structure that basically looks like a trumpet or like a funnel where you can put in your coins and then they would drop down into the box. Now, now these, these funnel structures, they didn't have cash. They didn't have online giving. They didn't have text to give or crypto or any of that stuff. They simply had coins. And so when you drop coins into a metal basin like this, into a a trumpet, you have the the power, the opportunity to make some noise, don't you? And so Jesus is sitting there and he pulls his disciples to him to show them something and, and give them perhaps his most famous and stirring teaching on how to handle our money and what trust and generosity actually look like. I want you to notice first that he takes them aside to show this to them. It's as if, though, there's crowds listening In there are his close followers who are directly listening to him and he points out many rich people put in large sums so you can picture this just picture someone in in long flowing robes walking in with a big bag of coins and slowly dropping them in ding 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 relishing the loud jingling that indicates to everyone else that you are a a heavy hitter you are a big giver and everyone's impressed now notice Jesus, he doesn't actually condemn their generosity in this, in this case. He doesn't say, "Now they shouldn't do that. Why are they giving? It, big gifts from, from wealthy people are, are a blessing to that temple, I am sure. But rather, watch what he does. He commends the meager generosity of someone else. Verse 42, it says, And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. One cent, two little coins that are worth one cent. After all the showmanship of these these wealthy donors, Jesus continues to observe and he sees this poor widow approaching and he says to his disciples, come here, look at this. Look at this. Watch. And she places in this minuscule offering that would make in the the crowds that were around the temple not a sound as she drops in these two coins. Pennies compared to gifts worth thousands of times more. Yet listen to what he says in verse 43. He called his disciples to him and he said, truly, I say to you, this is, Poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Uh, This is a a woman in a desperate state. This is a woman, as as Jesus has just described, in in, in a society in which the law was supposed to protect widows who had very little uh, protection in this day and age. He he looks around and those religious leaders are the ones that are, are acting out the oppression of these widows. And yet here she is in that context, unrelenting in her faithfulness towards God, her trust in God, so much so that she drops in her last pennies to give them to God, It's wondrous trust. Now, I don't want you to think that she's just going to leave the temple and that's it. She's going to go and find a corner somewhere where she's going to starve and die. Most people in that era, just as the poor do now, they'd spend yesterday's money, whatever they had earned, uh, from begging or selling or working to buy bread for today. And what Jesus is pointing out is that her money for her bread for today is what she is putting in. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for for daily bread. He's teaching them to pray, Lord, give us enough for today and that will be enough. We trust you. And he points to her and he's he's saying to them, this is how this woman lives day after day. She's not sure if she'll have enough for the next meal. She's not sure if today is going to be a day of, of unplanned fasting. But what Jesus commends in her is this simple, beautiful trust. That as she gives to God, she can rely on him and on his provision. I I, I can tell you that, that she has lived this. She has seen his hand. This is the evidence of someone who has seen the faithfulness of God on the darkest and worst of days where he has shown himself as the husband to the widow. He's taking care of her needs. And the contrast here is so clear. The lesson inherent in this is crystal clear. Jesus will often give a lesson and the disciples are left to wonder, but here he tells them exactly what's going on. He says, she gave more than anyone else because she gave out of her poverty while others gave out of their excesses. He says, the rich are giving from the excess of their riches. They're giving the interest that they've been earning or the appreciation of their assets, and that's good. And it makes a big noise. But this woman, she put in all that she has. And so I just want to pull out three brief lessons from this as this woman puts in all she has. The first is this true generosity in scripture is not measured by portion, but by proportion. Not by portion, but by proportion. That means it's it's more about the, the percentage than it is about the amount. Another way of saying this is it's not measured by how much is given, but what is left. For this woman, she gives and she has nothing. Left other than a simple trust that her provider will come through. True generosity is measured by portion, not by proportion. Secondly, true generosity is measured not by size, but by sacrifice. Not by size, but by sacrifice. This gift costs her a lot. And I think sometimes when we think about our, our wealth and our resources, I have this tendency too. It's it's, Lord, if I had to give up my car for the sake of your kingdom. Or or my house, or, you know, some t-shirt I like. Would I do that? It's hard. I mean, it it sounds pathetic, but that's hard. Is there a sacrifice in our giving? The Lord delights in our cheerful giving. We'll talk about this more, more next week. But true generosity is not measured by size, but by sacrifice in the eyes of Jesus. And he looks upon this woman, and he commends her for her sacrifice. Thirdly, true generosity is not so that we can be seen by others, but it is in the sight of God. This woman's gift doesn't get seen or recognized by the crowds, but, but think about this. The king of kings is sitting there in the corner, and he sees it. He sees it, and he commends her trusting faith. It, she is immortalized in, in Scripture for us. How good is that? Like, I, I know that maybe you want your generosity to be seen on some level, for people to know that, that you do something with your resources. And, and yet, here's what we can do. We can delight ourselves in knowing that our Father sees us. That he sees and he, he cares and he notices. Perhaps some of you have experienced this over the years. But, but this has been a relatively new for, experience for me as a father on a Father's Day. Now my children are old enough where they are in on the planning for Father's Day. And it's a wonderful thing. But what it means ultimately is that they will, because they have no resources of their own. They don't have any money. They will take from my material resources, my money, in order to buy gifts for me. Now I, I thought this was... Kind of a funny picture of what our relationship with God is like. Not that I'm anything like God, but as children of God, he's given us everything. And and when we we honor him with our wealth and our work and our worship, we do that solely out of the strength and provision that he has supplied. It's all his. We brought nothing into this world. We possess nothing except that which he has made and provided. And I think we all desire to be generous. You all raised your hands and, and told me that. But what I found is that generous people, those that are are truly sacrificially generous like this widow, is that they seem to have come to this profound revelation that all that they possess belongs to God. That it's all His. And and anything they've been given has been given to them to be stewarded for His glory. Those that are, are truly generous like this widow, they know that their home belongs to God. Their clothes belong to God. The very breath in their lungs is a gift from God. Their food belongs to God. Their their, their vehicle, their transportation belongs to God. Everything you have belongs to him because he created it and has gifted it to you to use for his kingdom and his glory. We are not owners. We are stewards. And if it all belongs to God, we are blessed, we are privileged to be able to use some of it for his glory, to steward it. And you get the sense that here, even in her poverty, even in the midst of this oppressive religious environment that should have been helping her and taking care of her, this widow has not lost faith in her father, in her provider. And she is willing to trust him to the last penny. You can trust him. You can trust him. And just as the father delights in his children, generously giving of what they've received, just as a father on Father's Day delights in the the gifts of his children from his own pocket, God in this woman delights, and he delights in us as in joyful response to him, we give. We don't serve a God who is not given. He is a God who is is incredibly generous to us. And as the band comes up, I just want to read one final scripture, and we'll return to this next week. God has given us everything. He has given us his very son. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says it this way. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let's go to him in in prayer right now. O gracious heavenly father, our dad, our creator, our provider, Lord, you are so, so good. And I thank you for the, the example of this trusting widow who was willing to put in her last coin because she knows you. And Lord, she has never seen you fail. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts like that, that we would have a de- desire to give, not out of compulsion, not out of, uh, of any kind of duty or obligation, but out of the joy of being your children and being able to participate as stewards in your kingdom work. Lord, let us be a generous church. Let us be a generous people. Lord, if there's anyone here who, who struggles with this, who, who has uh, the chains of, of greed and, and prestige and, and all these things upon them, Lord, I pray for freedom this morning. I pray for a freedom that that is, is achieved as we worship you alone, as we put you in your proper place as king of our lives, as Lord of our lives. Lord, we have nothing that didn't come from your hand and so we honor you with it today. We give you the glory, Lord. Shine your light in. Expose those dark places, Lord. We want to be clean. We want to be pure. We want to be like this widow who knows the loving hand of our Father. Lord, we trust you and we glorify you And we thank you that when we had no hope, you, though you were rich, yet for our sake you became poor, so that by our poverty we we might become rich, we might receive salvation. Lord, we thank you and we glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Right now we're going to respond to the word of God. There's going to be some teams over there that will pray with you and for you, and they can also pray for you after the service. But this is my invitation to you. God, are you speaking to me today? Is there anything you want me to do in response to this message? To tell him, Lord, I'm yours, I will do it. And then when you're ready, to stand and worship our King.